Our New Testament reading for today is from Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let's pray again. God, most merciful Father, grant to each today to hear your most holy word deep, deep in the sanctum of our hearts. Help us to hear your voice speaking to each and to every one of us, O Lord, that we might follow in your most holy way. We bow again before the authority of your word. We bow before the ministry of your Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that you would make us bare before you, that you would search us and that you would know us, and that, Lord, according to your word, you would see if there be any wicked way in us and that you would lead us today in the way everlasting. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, Lord, may it be acceptable in your sight. For we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Looking at Ephesians chapter 2 today, and in the latter half of Ephesians 2, we looked at the first half last week, Paul is addressing the lingering anxieties of the Gentiles with regard to being left out of the house of God. You can imagine these Gentiles having received the gospel and having spent centuries upon centuries upon centuries of being excluded from temple worship in Israel. They could approach the outer fringes of such worship, but they were excluded from the sacred center of God's presence. They weren't allowed at the very center and the heart of things. Paul has to reassure them, this is for you. And Tim Cook next week is going to be preaching, and Tim will, will lead you ably uh, through Ephesians 3, where Paul continues with this theme of Gentile inclusion. And so today I'm not going to say much more about this, um, except to say that we can hardly blame the Gentiles for having such a difficult time believing that they actually belong in God's house, not as guests, 
but as natural residents, as members of the household of faith. We've all visited various homes, and most of us have had extended visits in homes that aren't ours. When I left uh, Kelowna to study in Toronto, um, I rented a room in Scarborough, uh, which is a famous part of Toronto, and uh, I rented it from an elderly couple who lived near the Bamberg Circle, for those of you familiar with Toronto, on Warden and Steeles. And uh, they were an Irish couple, and they were from Belfast. And they had an accent so thick that I could only understand 65% of what they said. And I would kind of bow, nod my head as they talked with me. But this elderly couple took me in like grandparents, the McNamaras uh, they were. And I remember looking out outside my window, looking across Steeles Avenue into Markham and thinking to myself on a lonely Monday evening, what on earth am I doing in Toronto? Just completely bewildered by God calling me to Toronto and uh, being all on my own, by and large, and uh, being seized with a sense of being a stranger in a strange land. And then I'd go downstairs, and old Mrs. McNamara, with that thick Irish brogue, had made me this steaming pot of tea. And I'd sit with her and talk, and I had this refuge of warmth and of goodness. But even then, it wasn't home. It wasn't home for me because when I flew home for Christmas time and I heard my mom's voice and I closed my eyes and I smelled the smells of home and I, I heard the sound of home, I was flooded with a sense of well-being that no other habitation could possibly afford to me. And it's not like this for all. You know, we, we admit that where home has been a place of emotional and physical and psychological hazard and danger where home has represented poison and peril. It's simply one of the greatest tragedies that we can name. But where home flourishes in a way that God has designed it to flourish, where it's a place of laughter and mirth, where home is a place of humility and honesty, safety and joy, understanding and sympathy, where it's a place of strength, and light, and health, and rest, where home is all of these things, then it's beyond the power of human speech to convey. There is no place like home, says Dorothy, as she clicks her, her ruby heels together. There's no place like home. And Paul today speaks to these New Testament believers, and he wants to assure them that the church of God, it's their home. You are members, he says, of the household of God. And you see, for Paul, the most important home, it's the church. The church is the home. The church is the household of God. And he speaks to these new believers, and he wants to ground them in this truth. You, my brothers and sisters, know this church, it's your home. It's the home. And Paul offers three reasons today why all of us should treasure this home above all other homes in this life. And I want to tread very carefully here because many of us have deep feelings around the matter of home and family. And uh, if I'm honest with myself, many of us have been bombarded and saturated with this contemporary message of the divine order of things. God first 
family second, and church third. And on the surface, it sounds fairly reasonable. I mean, it's got to be in the Bible somewhere, right? Maybe Philemon 2 or Philemon chapter 3. It's got to be there somewhere. But then we start to think about it. And we start to think about this, this order that we've heard, and all of a sudden we realize that it puts the household of God in order of importance after the nuclear family. God first, family second, church third. And I want to suggest to you this morning, this afternoon, I'm sorry, that uh, it's, it's, um, <laughs> it's very difficult to speak to this. It's become nearly tantamount to modern heresy to deny this divine order, but the order isn't biblical. The order is not found in the Bible, and don't get me wrong, we want to build strong families at Christ Church. We believe in the family. We want husbands who love their wives and are willing to lay down their, their lives for their, for their wives. We want wives who love their husbands and submit to their godly and their gentle leadership. We want children who are holy, who quake at the thought of the name of God, who thrill with the suggestion that God loves them in Christ. We want this, we pray for this, we yearn for this, we want to experience this more and more, these kinds of families. But we don't want to be a people who are set fast in the mindset that the church comes third. And I want you to gather around the word today with me and listen to the prophet Haggai. Thus says the Lord of hosts, we read, the people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came to the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you? to dwell in your paneled houses while God's house lies in ruins? Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house of God that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified in my house, says the Lord. You've looked for much and you've come to little. Why? Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. And you see, the Israelites thought that it was more important to build their own homes than to build God's house. And the Lord would not bless that mindset. You look for much, but I've brought you to little. And listen to the words of the Lord. Whoever loves father, whoever loves mother, more than me is not worthy of me, our Lord says. And whoever loves son and whoever loves daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And even if, as Paul says, we must love and take care of our family, if we don't take care of our family's immediate needs, Paul says we are worse than unbelievers. Even so, we must not love our family, Jesus says, more than we love the Lord. And we must not love our homes more than we love God's house. But oh, the man says, in the New Testament, my house is God's house. 
My house is the church. I don't see any difference. Well, in a way, yes. In the New Testament, we are all God's temple. The church surely exists outside these walls, but in another way, certainly no. The family is not the house of God. Are our doors open to all equally in our homes? Can anyone climb in our beds? Can anyone share in your intimacies and private delights in your house? Can anyone be your son? Can anyone be your daughter, your sister, your brother? Does your family grow and increase weekly and monthly and yearly? Does it keep on multiplying without ceasing? If not, then it is not the house of God. For the house of God to be the house of God, as we read in Isaiah, it shall be called a house of prayer for who? For everyone. For all nations. And this house, in Paul's mind as we read today, is the best house. It's the most important house. The house that should take up our chief delights. And I want to look at three reasons briefly with you today as to why Paul thinks the house of God is the most important. Number one, we read that this house is built on a foundation that will never move. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. As many of you know, speaking of houses, we've been in a long process of renovation at our home. I've been filled with thoughts of concrete and beams and live loads and dead loads. We've been filled with thoughts about whether the materials will hold up under the strain of it all. And while most of it has been good, we've come to realize that in this life, nothing lasts. This is the message of Ecclesiastes, right? All things, the preacher says, are weariness. My driveway that we just poured six weeks ago is full of weariness. It is cracking, not yet six months of age. But God's house, we read, is built on a foundation that will never crack. God's house is the only house that is built on a foundation that will never crumble. It's first built on the teaching of the prophets and of the apostles, the teaching of the Old Testament and the teaching of the New. God's house is the place where you'll hear the declaration of Christ. Christ proclaimed by prophet and Christ proclaimed by apostle. The message of faith and the message of repentance. It's the best house because it has the best foundation. Secondly, we read this is a house where God has ordained your growth. Verse 21, in Christ, the whole structure of God's house is being joined together, person to person, and it's growing into a holy temple in the Lord. In, Paul, in God's house, Paul says, you grow. And I want you to notice Paul's assertion that you grow together. And he fits you together here in the God's house with people you never would have considered on your own. We watched a mason the other week at our home as he created a, uh, a stone wall and he created these tight joints as he put stone against stone. And when he went to, to put those stones in place, he didn't grab just any old stone from the pile. 
but he carefully scoured the pile to find just the perfect fit so that edge would meet with edge. You see, in the church, God joins us with other people. He brings people across our path who can complement us and encourage us and refine us and rebuke us and listen to us and help us. Because the truth of the Bible is we can't do it on our own. We weren't meant to do it on our own. Join together, Paul says. Join together and growing. This is the emphasis that I read in the New Testament church. Acts 2.46, day by day, the believers were attending the temple together. Day by day. The believers were so fixed on what was happening that they couldn't stop gathering together and they attended the temple to seek the Lord. And we have to rest ourselves, at times violently, from the individualism and the cocooning of our age that says we can do it on our own. Because in the church, it's together that we grow. And it's only as I meet Christ in my brother. It is only as I meet Christ and my sister that I can grow. We're growing, says Paul, into a temple. We're growing, says Paul, into a place of worship. God is making us to be a people that is capable of the high praises of God. The place where we can experience the height and the depth and the width, I don't know which way the breadth is, and the breadth of God's presence, where we can experience God. I want you to listen with me again to the psalm that we read today. I want you to let the words test your own experience. I want you to let the words scour you. The psalmist says, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. For one day in your courts, it's better than a thousand anywhere else. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. I would rather only have one day praising you with your people in your house then spend a thousand days anywhere else. I've often asked myself what distinguishes Christians from their surrounding culture. I mean, when you think about it, we watch the same films, or at least some of them. We read the same poetry, or at least some of them. We go to the same restaurants. We, we wear the same fashions. We enjoy the same pleasures. We cry over the same sorrows. Often our outward morality seems nearly indistinguishable from those around us. Well, what makes the Christian different? What makes us different? And I've come to think that the answer is very, very simple indeed. We are to be different. We are distinguished by this. We are a better is one day people. We are the ones who say, one day, Lord, in your presence, worshiping with your people is better than anything else I can possibly imagine. I would rather be with your people, O oh God. 
We know the pleasures of the world. We understand them. They're our Father's pleasures. We enjoy them too. But I would rather be with God's people. I would rather be going in that holy train, ascending towards God. We would rather be worshiping the Lord together than doing anything else in this life. In fact, if I could only be a a doorman, if I can only open the door to my brothers and sisters so that I can see them going to where they will be most happy, then I will be satisfied more than anything, the wine and the grain abounding in the world. And I can imagine driving down the highway this evening, and I can imagine a car with a bumper sticker, and on that car, the bumper sticker saying, I'd rather be in church. And you know, the majority of our world, and perhaps many people in our church would scoff at that statement, but the bumper sticker speaks the truth. The godly man and woman would rather be with God's people. It is the sign of God's Spirit working in them because they know it's there. They know it's in those courts that they are being shaped into a temple of God. And they know that one day in the Lord's house is better than a thousand elsewhere. And my brothers and sisters, I want you to let the word search your heart today. If we don't grasp the truth here, if we don't grasp the truth now, there's no reason to believe we'll grasp it in the next, where life is about worship with the people of God. A great multitude that no one can can count, and a sound like the roar of many waters and a peal of mighty thunders that people gather together before the glory of the Lord and they say together with that resounding voice, let us rejoice, let us exalt together, and let us give God the glory. My brothers and sisters, you are members of God's household. You are members of God's family. And in this house, you are being built up into a temple of the Lord. And finally today, Paul's third point, he tells us that this house is where we are being built up into nothing less than a dwelling place of God. It's in the house of God, established on Christ, joined with Christ's people, that we are being made capable of receiving God. And I don't want to belabor this point today, but we were made to be filled with God. You and I were made to be filled with God. And, I, you know, that's the gospel in a nutshell. We've been given the power We've been given the ability, we've been given the freedom to be filled with all God's fullness, as Paul says in Ephesians 3, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that what? So that you might be filled with all of the fullness of God. A human being is a vessel made to be filled with God. God satisfies us. God's presence fills us with pleasure. God completes. God perfects. God restores. God exalts. God exhilarates. And the world comes with all of its thousand pleasures. 
Try me, try me, try me, and nothing even comes close to how the Lord satisfies the human soul. And Paul says it's in the church that we are being made capable of God. We are being built together, he says, into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. Built together, he says. So you see what Paul means? You are not capable of God yourself. You are not capable of God on your own, but you are only capable of God's presence as he builds you together with his people. And private religion is a wonderful thing, slipping off into the mountains. We read this the other day with our kids as Jesus was, was slipping away from his disciples again and again. He resorts to be with his Father alone, seeking the Lord in prayer. This is so very important, but I cannot be a dwelling place of God without the church. Even though we are all temples of the Holy Spirit, we are only temples of the Spirit individually because we are being built together, Paul says, to be a habitation of God. And so I need you to get more of God. And you need me to get more of God. And we all need each other. And as we devote ourselves to this thing, as we come together as God's people and say, better is one day in your house, O Lord, than a thousand elsewhere. God is making us as vessels bigger and bigger and bigger to receive more and more of the presence of God. A thimble full of water is full. I would rather be a great big that capable of receiving that much more of the Lord. And it's in the church, Paul says, that you are being built together as a holy habitation that God may reside in you in all of his glory and power. And so my brothers and sisters, may this word sink in us deep. May this word deeply affect us and may this word change us to be a people that he wants us to be, a kingdom people, a together people, a people who are convinced. Better is one day, Lord, in your house than a thousand elsewhere. In the name of the Father, and in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen.